well, I need a blessing from God. I suspect you do too. So let's open his word. Please, and will you turn with me to Psalm 134. 134. If you're using the church Bible, that's going to be on page 519. So we're coming down now in this series on uh, songs of ascents. We're coming now down to the end. We have three psalms to go. And we're going to do two today. We're going to do 134 and we're going to do 131. And next week we will pick up 132. Uh, 134 is a really short one as you look there on the page. I mean, it's really, really short. But it has something to say to us, especially today. Now remember, these are songs of ascents. Okay, so these are psalms that were pulled together in order to kind of be like a little manual for the Jewish pilgrims as they would travel up to Jerusalem. They were asked to do that three times a year to celebrate feasts all together in Jerusalem. So they travel from their homes, travel up to Jerusalem. And these psalms were designed, pulled together in order to be sung and prayed during their travels while they were in Jerusalem and on their return home. And 134 is the psalm that sends them home. Picture it this way before I read the psalm. You're in Jerusalem. You're part of a family, or maybe you're there with a set of friends. And, and tomorrow morning, you're going to leave really early. And that's just what you do in Israel. You leave, you travel early. You get up before dawn in order to travel before the sun gets really, really high because it just gets to be too hot in the middle of the day. So you know you're going to travel first thing in the morning. So the evening before, you go to the temple in order to one last time offer praise to God, hear the priests praise God, but also in order, ideally in order to have the priest pronounce a blessing on you. So you and your group go, and you arrive there at the temple, and it's evening, and with the shift work there at the temple, the night shift has just started. We know that there were Levites and priests who would be there throughout the night, tending to the temple furniture and continuing to praise God and doing a number of things during the night. So we've arrived there. And you and the group say to the, to the priest, who's going to be working all night, you say to him, verses 1 and 2, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, priests, Levites. Bless the Lord, you who stand by night in those long, long hours of the middle of the night, you who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And that's presumably what then happens. The priests bless the Lord. They they offer a prayer maybe along the lines of, Lord, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done. These people have come here to praise you, and on their behalf, we lift to you our thanks. 
And then one of the priests turns to you and to your group and pronounces verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 is the group talking to the priest. Verse 3 is the priest responding back. And he says to you and your group that evening, may the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. In other words, as you go home tomorrow morning, as you leave Jerusalem behind, may the Lord continue to bless you from Zion, his temple. His temple is here, yes, in this city, but remember, he is everywhere and he is strong. So he can bless you wherever you travel. He can bless you wherever you live. He can bless you in whatever situation you find yourself. He can bless you in life. He can bless you in death. He can bless you in darkness. He can bless you in joy. And he can do that because he is the one who, quote, made heaven and earth, unquote. There's nothing too big for him. He can bless you. And so may he bless you. What a blessing. I mean, it fits all of us, especially today, that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, from Zion, from, from his seat at the right hand of the Father. This Lord Jesus is committed to you if you're his follower. And he will, wherever you are, and in whatever situation you find yourself, he will be with you and he can bless you. That is a psalm to take home. And so the pilgrims go back to their tents and they leave in the morning with this blessing in, this, in their ears. And then maybe also they leave with what I'm going to call a prayer in their pocket. That's where Psalm 131 comes in. So let me read 131 for you. A song of ascents of David, meaning possibly written by David, originating from, but edited, maybe in the style of David. It could mean any of those things. We just don't know what of David means. Somehow the psalm reflects David. It's a song of sense of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This too is God's word. Psalm 131 is a pocket prayer. A pocket prayer.
Uh, way back when I was around 10 years old, my mom bought me a book. And that book launched me into uh, something that's been part of who I am ever, have been ever since. And that's my kind of lifelong love for birds. And today, I mean, I have dozens of bird books, actually 33 to be, to be exact. Yeah, my, my sons texted me last week. They said, hey, Dad, you know, what do you want for Father's Day? And I text back and say, you know, something like, oh, whatever, you know, just, just you know, thankful that you love me, something like that, you know. And, and then I realized, oh, my goodness, I hope I, I don't need any more bird books. So I pick up the, the phone and I text, but, but nothing having to do with birds. Got plenty of that, okay. My mom gave me this book. Here it is, the actual book she gave to me. It's called Birds, A Guide to the Most Familiar American Birds. And it's short. It's small. It's compact. Nicely illustrated. Beautiful pictures of a variety of birds inside. It's the kind of book you carry in your pocket. And then when you see a bird... You pull it out of your pocket, and there it is, and you feel, oh, you know, that's a herring gull. Okay, you got it. Same sorts of things can be said of Psalm 131. It's a pocket prayer. It's short. It's compact. It's focused. It's got a beautiful illustration in verse 2. It's the kind of prayer you can carry in your pocket and pull it out when you need it. It's the kind of prayer to memorize, to write on a three-by-five card or, or put it in Evernote or some sort of app on your phone or, or bookmark it in your Bible so it's there so that when you need it, it's just ready to go. Let me convince you to make Psalm 131 a pocket prayer for you. Let me give you three reasons to make it a pocket prayer. Reason number one, I'm going to start down at the bottom of the psalm. First reason to make Psalm 131 a pocket prayer is because of the author's experience. The author's experience is telling us, pray this prayer. Uh, this author, whether David or someone else, he's fought a spiritual battle in prayer, and he's recorded it for us in verses 1 and 2, and we'll see that in a bit. In verse 3, what he says then is, O Israel, trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And I, I don't want you to see verse 3 as kind of like something floating on the page, just pious words put on the page that have no connection to verses 1 and 2. They do have a connection to verses 1 and 2. They connect right into verses 1 and 2. He has come through something, he's fought a battle, and he's telling those who will listen, learn to trust. Learn to pray like I've learned to pray. I mean, this is the Bible here. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us today. And God's saying, oh, Stonehill Church, learn to trust and pray like this person learned to trust and pray. That's the first reason. 
Second reason, now we go up to the top of the song. Second reason to make 131 a pocket prayer is because like the author, we live in a culture with some particularly toxic temptations. Now, when I mention toxic temptations, I'm sure your mind moves to things like money, sex, power, status. And those things can be toxic. They can all be abused. But the dangers in this psalm are different. There may be the background to the abuse of money and sex and power and status. The things in view here are silent, quiet killers. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart's not lifted up. And you know, I don't think he would be writing this thing. I don't think he would be writing that if he hadn't come through a struggle with the very thing that he's saying. I've been struggling, but now my heart's not lifted up. A lifted up heart. That's an overly ambitious heart. Oh Lord, I don't want to be driven to control stuff that I wasn't made to control. And then he says, my eyes are not raised too high. The idea there is the eyes raised to try to see way beyond what they were ever made to see. Oh, Lord, I don't want to be driven to, to know, to know, to know stuff that I wasn't made to know. Next statement. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous. I I, I don't want to be driven here, Lord, to achieve stuff, to feel like I have to perform and achieve beyond what I was made by you to, to perform or achieve. The author here is describing what you might at first glance kind of call an ambitious soul. But I want to be be more precise because there is good ambition. What the author is describing here is a driven soul. A soul for whom ambition has taken over and has become a god. A driven soul. I have to control. I have to know and I have to know more. And I have to know more than the people around me. I have to achieve. I have to perform. I have to perform more than the people around me. I have to know. I have to control. I have to achieve. Don't you see how those three statements capture the driven culture in which we live? I mean, control. This is greater New York. Control. Uh, Achievement. This is like performance city. No. Let me talk a little bit about knowing. We are living here in one of the world centers of educational or knowledge idolatry. No. No, no, K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W, no, 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 no. And so 
It's easy. We, we, we think that we're better because we have a bunch of letters after our name. We think our way is right because, well, those people, they struggle to complete high school. Paul means it when in Corinthians he says, knowledge puffs up. He just states it. Knowledge puffs up. Lays it out there. No limit. No, no condition. Knowledge puffs up. I, this sermon is not an argument against education and knowledge. Do not hear this sermon that way. But it is, this sermon is, this text is a gospel warning against the very real danger to be found in the, the relentless drive to know and to believe that you're better because you know the more degrees you have, the more school you go to, the more you learn, the more you are at risk of being puffed up. Because, as Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It makes you proud. It makes you overly confident. It makes you believe that somehow you are better because you know more. And the dangerous thing about that kind of pride, that driven knowledge pride, is like all prides, it's invisible. It's, it's so hard for you to see it. But sometimes God comes along or brings a person along or a situation along that crashes into that pride and shatters it. And you see, you see yourself suddenly for what you are. It's just one more human being who has been trapped in an idolatry. I think of Jesus. Poor Jesus. He was a blue-collar worker. Blue collar. He was a carpenter. And he had no advanced degrees. And I wonder if, if Jesus were to show up in Prince, Princeton, would we pay attention to him? If he were to show up at Stonehill Church, would we pay attention to him? No degrees. Just a carpenter. Here are five signs, five signs that you need this psalm and its, and its antidote to this kind of knowledge-drivenness, knowledge-pride, knowledge-idolatry. Here they are. Number one, that you find yourself writing someone else off. You just write someone else off because, well, that person is just plain stupid. Really? Jesus had something to say about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He warned us about calling someone stupid. Next. You think you've got everything figured out. I got this one figured out. Third. You think you know what ex what, exactly what should be done in a situation. Well, I know what should be done. Listen to me. Or next. You scorn someone or refuse to talk to someone because you disagree. Or finally, you find yourself not listening to someone because you think you already know. I already know what the person's going to say. Why should I bother to listen? Toxic temptations 
of, in this case, a knowledge-driven soul. A driven soul. And that's only picking up on my eyes are not raised too high. There's control-drivenness, the first statement in verse 1. And there's performance-drivenness, the third statement in verse 1. Well, we, in this driven culture, we all need this psalm. Make it a pocket psalm. Third reason is because the impact of this prayer can be a liberating contentment to be found only in Jesus. Verse 2 is miles away from verse 1. There's an art in this psalm. Verse 1, a lot of words, a lot of stuff going on. It's a busy verse. Then you get to verse 2, and there's one idea beautifully illustrated and repeated. It's just suddenly everything simplifies. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It almost relaxes you. Verse 2. Now you know what a weaned child is. A weaned child is a child that's been taught to eat and drink from something other than mommy, okay? So a weaned child, when you place the weaned child in mommy's lap, the weaned child no longer roots around and tries to get milk. Nope. The child is content just to sit on mommy's lap. The child's happy. The child's secure doesn't need anything from mommy. Let me repeat that. A weaned child doesn't need anything from mommy. The child is content just to rest on mommy's lap, to be happy and safe and warm and secure. A soul that is content in Jesus isn't driven anymore. Like the weaned child, a soul content in Jesus doesn't need God to do something, doesn't uh, need God to, you've got to fix this problem for me, you've got to do it my way, God, you've got to handle this, you've got you to fulfill my dream, I always, always demanding of God, demanding of other people. The weaned soul, the contented soul in Jesus doesn't need that. A soul contented in Jesus has all that it needs. I mean, as, as, here's what Paul wrote. He said, someone content in Jesus may, now this is Paul, may have nothing, but truly possesses everything. And that's because Jesus is life's greatest treasure. I once saw a plaque, an inscription, in a courtyard of a university here on the East Coast, a large, well-known university. And this university, 
It's a secular university. It used to be a Christian university. So when I saw this inscription, I, it was, I, I was struck. I jotted it down. Here's the inscription. Give yourself up to Christ with a cordial confidence. And the great work of life is done. Give yourself up to Christ with a cordial, meaning a, a, a heartfelt, sincere, sweet confidence. Give yourself up to Christ with a sweet confidence. And the great work of life is done. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the most important thing in life is to trust Jesus Christ? And once that's happened in your life or in a loved one's life, the big, main, central issue of life is done. It's finished. It's resolved. And there's other stuff to be sure. But that is the great work of life. The reason that's true is because Christ is life's greatest treasure. As he puts it in one of his parables, he's like the pearl of great price. You find this and once you got it, you'll give up anything to have it. Perhaps for me, if I can extend this a little bit further, perhaps for me, the most tearful but most necessary words that I spoke at yesterday's family-only funeral for the Lee family, perhaps those words were along these lines. Apart from God, we are all weak and broken. But thanks be to God, our real value is measured not in terms of what we do or how long we live or how much we know or how well we succeed or even how we die. Our real value is measured in terms of who we are in Christ, that we're made in his image as creatures. And being remade into his image as his redeemed brothers and sisters. That, that is your real value. And performance, knowledge, achievement add nothing to that. When you make Psalm 131 a pocket prayer, when you take it and pray it, you have the opportunity to discover again and again the freedom of being content in Christ. Let me get practical as I wrap things up. Alex Cato, who's seated right down here, is one of our deacons, leads us in worship often. He has preached and worked and written on Psalm 131 a lot. And I want to conclude with some words that he wrote about this psalm 
near words filled with practical advice on how to pray this psalm. Here they are. When things are really bad, when my soul is really driven, I kneel down by my bed so I can focus. And I open up my Bible to Psalm 131 and I pray it. And then when my heart says, are we really doing this? I pray it again. And then my heart says, oh, please. And I pray it again. And my heart says, I wish. And I pray it again. And my heart says, if only. And I pray it again. And my heart says, just maybe. And I pray it again. And my heart says, yes, Lord. And I pray it again. And I pray it again. Until my heart says, oh, Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Stonehill Church of Princeton, Hope in the Lord Jesus from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, it is so difficult to live against the culture. At those points where the culture leads us in a way of death, rescue us. Get us back on your way, your path. There's so much drivenness around us. Rescue us. To be people who are, first of all, complete and content in Christ. And out of that identity of being in Jesus, may we then pursue the, the callings that you have for us, and may we do so with robust energy, but never with idolatrous drivenness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.